So it will be just a, a casual um, conversation. You're there, Alice? Yeah, I'm there. Thanks. Oh, there you are. Hi, Alice. Yes, How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Good I'm to see well. you. So great to see you. So yes, the recording is on. I'm okay with recording, no problem. Good to see you after a long time. Yes, I'm so looking forward to hearing and hearing what's been happening over the last couple of years. What I thought would be useful is just to give a guide on this evening. I'm conscious we've allocated two hours and I'd like it to just be a casual conversation. So what I had in mind is that we would have probably four or five parts to the evening and just to ensure that we can get through everything. So the first part would be to hear Alice's story. The second will be some questions for Philippa as the author with Alice. The third mm -hmm. is what's happening currently in um, Padere and with Tokoro, given COVID and really since 2020 when the book was launched and you were in Australia. And then would like to open it up so Everyone, as you hear Alice speak, then please think of any questions you would like and to take the opportunity to hear from Alice and to ask questions about the way Tokoro is working. And then to conclude, I'd like to just consider how we in Australia could best assist your incredible work and the transformational impact that you're having on the lives for so many girls. So scream yeah. if anyone objects. Sounds good to me. Excellent. So welcome, everyone. And thank you for carving out time from, I know everyone's got busy schedules, but it's just such an incredible opportunity to hear from Alice as one of those exceptionally rare, but truly phenomenal women and people of the world. Alice, as reflected in the title, School of Restoration, education has always been something that has been, that you've been dedicated to throughout your schooling. Just to set the scene, because while this is a book club, we have to confess that we're a little bit of a delinquent book club in terms of having an absolute dedication to reading all of the books. And I know of myself when the book came out in 2020 that it was such a trans, it was such an engaging book and it was so beautifully written that so reading it through the night and then you kind of tweak back on of oh, far out we're in the middle of COVID. So just to give us a bit of background, could you just explain to us your position within your family and your father's attitude towards education or where you otherwise drew inspiration for your dedication to education. Thank you so much and thank you for giving me the opportunity to meet your book club members. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Uh, uh, my, my life, uh, my position in our family I'm the second last child uh, of my dad, and I'm the second last child of my mother. My dad had five women, and we were seven, we were, we were uh, 15 girls, and I'm the second last. So um, during all those days, my parents uh, were leaving us peasant uh, farmers, my mother particularly was a peasant farmer. My father was the appointed uh, chief of during the British colonial, but still he had a very strong <laughs> cultural influence and the culture of you know, women and men having different roles was, was very paramount at that time. So all my stepmothers, including my mothers were housewives. 
the fact that they never went to a school that would, would even justify. So me uh, being the only girl who grew up with a, a family who never thought education was very important for women, I saw a lot of challenges and uh, my father's wish was at first, you know, marriage was the only thing because being a wealthy achieved by then, most of men in the village would want to marry his daughters and they would marry with a lot of animals, like maybe about 10 to 15 cattle that they would pay for as a bright price. So my father and the entire community saw that as part of the wealth. Uh, so many of my sisters were married at a very early age. Let me say 15, uh, 17, 20, very tender age and with a lot of money until uh, in, uh, in 1986, when we experienced the civil war and we had inter-tribal inter rivalries where our cattle, everything was taken away. That's when they realized that, yes, my father realized that yes, wealth in terms of cattle, in terms of God was not the only wealth. So most of my sisters who never went to school, they were home, they, were became, they became totally poor. I was lucky that I was the youngest even during that time. So I think that perspective of losing everything, the cattle, you know, gave, gave my dad a different, a different perspective and um, education became his key. Much as all his sons were educated, to him, girls were supposed to be married and be responsible wives responsible mothers, education was not the thing. But after that, he saw the value that his sons were able to help him. And then he thought that would be the best way for me to continue and study no matter what it is. So his influence over my education was really very important after the civil war breakout in our community. And how old were you when the civil war broke out? I think I was about 12, 12 years going to 13 when the Civil War broke in my community. And I know that it's, um, the experience was something that we couldn't really imagine here fulsomely in Australia. But could you describe, as you describe in the book, the way the children were living and where they slept at night given the activities of the LRA? Uh, the, yes, the, the, the nature of the civil war was not this modern civil war. It was kind of rural based, where the leaders of the rebel by then, the Lord Registan Hami, would recruit young children and train them into LRA and, 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 and indoctrinate them, uh, you know, by killings, their close relatives. Some parents also were forced to kill their own parents as they resist abduction. And then the best way that parents could keep their children safe is by hiding them in the bush. Remember we in rural areas, there's no uh, road networks, there's no telecommunication by that time and the security system was not strong enough to protect the community. So the best way that parents could keep their children was hiding them in the bush far away where the rebel could access. Definitely, I was one of the girls who really spent a lot of my time hiding in the bush, you know, going without water, going without food, you know, being a woman staying in the bush, you know, for like three, four days without bath. It was not a simple life for many, many, many children, especially girls. And the girls who were uh, not lucky, 
they were abducted and taken. Some were killed in the process. Some of them were made to be, you know, sex slaves. They were forcefully into sexual relationship by the rebels commander. So things was really difficult. There was no uh, government system that would protect the community. The fact that this is a rural war, rural war with no agenda, there was no political agenda. So the, the way they would recruit the army were recruiting children, young as 10, young as nine, so that they indoctrinated. So this, this was kind of life that most of us led, you know, in early 80s until early 90s. When you were out here in 2020, you were generous with your time and you spoke to a couple of schools and you spoke with Ambrose Tracy College at Indrapilly and you could have heard a pin drop. The boys there, I think they were year nines and then year tens, and they were so captivated by your story. And afterwards, the one of the teachers sent through some messages from parents to say that they were written by mothers and they were saying they've never had those kinds of conversations with their sons. And they were recounting what your story was. And the, I think one of the most impactful parts of your story that really resonated with the boys, and if you could just repeat it here, was how did the LRA break the spirit of the children, um, particularly boys when they were recruiting them? I think to boys, uh, I think one of the worst thing experience for the boys was, you know, giving them that confidence and courage. The initiation was once you have to kill somebody. You have to kill somebody or they send boys into a dangerous mission, like stealing food from the camp, like ambushing the military vehicles. And you know, every time the boys uh, does that successfully, they were promoted and given rank and titles and given escorts. Imagine a boy of 12 or 13 years old who is sent on a mission to go and raid the, 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 the village. And in the raiding, he comes with food, he comes with a lot of things. Immediately, he was promoted to the rank of high army commander to a young child who is given escorts, a strong military escort, powerful military escort with guns and protected. He grew, many boys grew into that confidence that one day they'll make it to the high top management. And they were indoctrinated that they are going to overthrow the government and they'll be driven big cars under heavy military escorts. So most young boys were indoctrinated. I think the worst indoctrination was boys who would resist their arrest. Boys who, I mean, abduction, boys who would um, resist and fight back to the rebels they would thoroughly be beaten and they would be given macete to chop one of the closest relatives. There are experience where boys are forced to kill their siblings. The experience where boys are forced to kill his own father or his own mother. So that kind of indoctrination gives boys high confidence and no mercy to anybody. A child who has killed the mother would not have mercy to anybody. So they were so much indoctrinated that when they go to the bush, they really have mercy. And that's why the war became so destruction, abduction, killing became the rampant of the LRA war in Northern Uganda. And one of your brothers was really your champion to ensure that you had opportunities to receive an education, including going to boarding school. But even there, you weren't safe from the reach of the LRA. Would you be able to describe what occurred when the LRA raided 
one evening, one night? My brother was a truck driver. Uh, I remember people who were already displaced from their homes into what is called internally displaced person camps. So he had the opportunity to work with World Food Program, supplying food into the camps. So when he came home and he found that, you know, we are not going to school and many girls, many girls actually, even those who survive abduction, were forcefully given out to men so that they become pregnant because once you are pregnant, the hell cannot take you to the bush. So many parents were really giving out the girls so that they can get pregnant with the men in the village. But my father was so protected. So when my brother came, he took me away to the village, from the village to a city, which was seems to be a more secured and I completed my primary education. Then after joining uh, form one, that is senior one, uh, the rebel activity became very intensive. And um, <clears throat> in my school, many girls were abducted. Thank God they survived. And because he was supplying food all over country in the Eastern part of the country, that is Karamoja, which is bordering Kenya. He picked me from Gulu and took me very far away in another district, in another place completely, which doesn't speak our language in a foreign land almost. And I was put there to study. I started my senior two from there, which was not an easy life again, because during the conflict, the same tribe who would come and raid the cattle. And these are the Karamojongs, the warriors who had guns, who had to fight with spears. So I was taken to that school, which life was not easy again for me. But of course, his, his presence, his courage really helped me. And also my personal conviction that I want to study. <clears throat> I think um, my brother taking me away from Gulu into another land was another strong foundation for me to be independent and learn really to be on my own because we could not speak the same language. Remember I'm from a different language and my English wasn't good. So most time I was in, isolated, in isolation and that helped me really to create a strong foundation of how am I going to manage my life and definitely helped me to develop a life skills that kept me really going, you know, amidst all the challenges. And can you describe what occurred when the LRA raided the boarding school one night and girls were taken? Sorry? One night when the LRA raided the boarding school and mm. the other girls were taken and miraculously you weren't. Yeah, it happens that we, we uh, me, I was in a separate room, which is quite smaller. And uh, we used to sleep in a corner with some few friends. And I think in the process as the LRA were taking other girls, we survived because the piles, all the mattresses and the blankets on us, and that's how we survived, you know, being taken. And that was really a miracle, a miracle in a way that the greatest population of the girls were taken, but a very few of us remained. So this to me was just a miracle that I could even describe. And immediately that's when my brother took me away because I, I don't know where I would be. I don't know how I would be, even if I was to be alive, I would come up a different person, maybe with a disability, maybe with pregnancy, or even I would be dead. But taking me away to another district was a good, a good purpose. And I think my own conviction, you know, when I was growing up in my village, education was something that I hoped for because 
the fact that all my stepmothers, including my mother, never went to school, I saw a lot of challenges in their lives, you know, particularly my mother would go to the garden, to the farm, and, you know, as he was working, would sing and cry, I wouldn't understand. But as a young girl seeing your mother crying, tears coming with songs, a lot of African women express a lot of disappointment through songs. I would feel so bad. And I said, what could be the problem? What is wrong with my mom? Until I grew up and I realized how my mother was being oppressed, being hard on, you know, living alone with so many co-wives. So that was so strong. And I think that conviction even just God did it purposely and it kept me, you know, with the faith that I should study and be somebody help and transform my community and my families. And when you were nearing the final stages of your education and you were preparing for your final exams, you received a call from your brother about your brother's wife who was ill and had a couple of um, young girls. Can you tell us what happened then and how that changed the trajectory of your education? So when, when I was in my final year to, to graduate from high school and maybe the following year I would go to university, uh, one of my, my brother, remember during that time, there's still war in my village so my brother who was working in Kampala, had to deconstructed HIV AIDS and his wife died uh, because by that time there was no treatment, no ARV. So the wife died leaving a girl, a baby of six months, another two children. And by that time, uh, then the, our family looked around and there was no anybody who could come and support my brother. So I had to drop from high school and should stay home to take care of these children. Because my brother, after losing his wife, he became so helpless, he could not do anything. And you know, you could not access the village. I was already taken to another district. So I came from that place straight to Kampala. And I, I dropped out of school. I took care of these girls for one year until my father, my brother got a job and, um, and got somebody to, to take care of them while I go back to school. So in that process, you know, I just felt that why is happening? Why is my education keep disrupted? But I realized that all this through was an opportunity to give me the stronger, to give me the courage, to give me the confidence, but also to give me more compassion to help so many people who are desperate because it was not easy for me as a young girl to take off these three girls and my brother was grieving. I would feel this pain. I would even, I was so worried that I would even catch HIV AIDS because the, the two girls, all the three girls were infected and there was no measure. But I realized that this was something that was the beginning of my journey for the greater work that I would do in future. And how old were you at that time when you started looking after your nieces? I think I was about, it was about 18, 19. And so that your strength of character and compassion that you had, that you, for that time, and not knowing whether you would be able to return to your education and having gone above and beyond to pursue an education, knowing the benefits that it could provide, that you stopped your schooling so that you could look after your nieces. And then yeah, because, you know, definitely there was nobody. And this little baby was so young. 
that's needed somehow. And you know, when you when you are desperate and you can't think straightforward, you just go into thing and say, God, can you help me sort it out? Because they, they totally didn't have any support. My family was very far away. My brother was in Kampala and I was alone, me and him. So things were really so hard that you would feel that you need to help and you need to support in other way. So I think that that kept growing, you know, in me, the courage, the strength, the compassion to see that people who are in desperate situation can be of help. And, you know, offering that service as if I'm available, I would, it really gave me a lot of satisfaction that I could help my brother. And what role? Not care my education, you know, because I knew my education can wait, but my brother at that time needed me to be around to help with the kids. And that's an incredible undertaking to take on at such a young age yourself. And knowing that there's a different path if you had pursued education, but that you chose to look after your nieces. What role did faith play in your life at that time? Oh, I think but from, from, two, from 1986 to 19 to early 90s, I think most of our, my community totally turned to God, turned to their own belief. But the greatest population of my community are Christian, almost 90% are Christians. And the fact that the war was there and the children were being taken away, people grew to depend on God. People grew to believe and hope that God would protect them. Honestly, there was no protection from the government. There was no protection from anybody. So at that time, Imagine in the bush alone where your parents are not there, you don't know what's going to happen. And the only relationship you would build at that time is between you and God. And that started right from, two, from 1986, 87, until when I went to study in another district. I grew very strong in faith and it helped me to walk. I've been walking in faith and hope that God, I know this is the plan that you have for me. And this is the plan that is going to accomplish. So in everything that I do with the hope that God will make it happen according to my own desire, because there's no one you can depend on. There's no one that you can go for counseling and guiding, even for financial support. So the whole hope is trust and believing that God can only make things possible. And faith became a walk. People became a... Uh, uh, a real action walking by faith because you never know that you will move from one district to another before going into ambush and say, God, you know, you let me go and I will pass through. So our life was totally depending on God and depending on faith and trusting that God will do everything possible to save us. And you looked after your nieces with such love and I'm sorry to mention it because it was such a devastating time, but um, can you just briefly describe what occurred with your nieces and then how that impacted on your life? I think my, what happened then later is when my, my brother got a job and I completed my studies, everything my brother helped me through and I got a job in Kitgum. I mean, I got a job in the company, sugar company where my brother was working and later on he got a job in Kitgum, my own village. He left those kids with me, but unfortunately, as I mentioned, these kids were already uh, infected with HIV AIDS virus, and they became so ill that they, 
condition became so critical, but unfortunately they began dying one by one. You know, started with the youngest, started with the, the middle girl, and started with the firstborn, and the last born that the mother died when she was six months. I think that what hits me most was the death of the six, the six, the six month old girl that the mother left. By the time she died, she was already six because I dedicated all my time, you know, to take her over, take her like my own daughter at the age of six, uh, six months. And she would call me mama, she not auntie, because the other kids would call me auntie. But for, for her, she knew me as a mother. So when she died in 2000, 2000, her death was a big blow. I lost hope, I lost everything. Thing became so difficult to me because I felt like I lost the whole me because I dedicated all my time, you know, dropping out of school to take her. Actually, the main reason why I dropped out of school was to take her care of her because she needed a, a, a good care. And, and, and I, I, I dedicated my time our death really gave me a big blow. Like I lost everything, like I lost part of me. I became totally confused. I became so traumatized and I just lost hope even faith in God because if I, any prayers that I prayed was God to help this girl stay long and help her get out of the virus so that she can be okay. But since that never happened, I was so devastated, I lost hope. I became so difficult that I wanted to die because I really didn't know what happened. I didn't know what was going to happen. I remember it was at 3 a.m. at night and when the girl died, I had such a courage that I had to carry her body that very night and bring her home. I, I couldn't leave her in the hospital and I couldn't believe that she's dead. So that thing affected me and I was so depressed until, I just had to get out of myself. So I, did, I decided just to go away and get, get away from home, went to Kampala. And then from Kampala, I came back to Padel. So it was not an easy thing. Things were so difficult, you know, for me emotionally. Remember there was still war, the family is so broken. So there was no any kind of emotional support, psychosocial counseling. Being a young girl, it was a difficult life, you know, it was a difficult time for me. And I'm sorry to, for you to make you recount that, but on a far happier note, you then met a young woman who had a baby of her own and from memory she was pregnant again. How did she impact your life? So, you know, and, and uh, as like you're moving from one stage of love, recovering and you think you're going to do better, I was confronted with a situation uh, after losing this girl, I got a, I got a permanent employment with APSI. Actually, when this girl died, I was on a voluntary work with APSI. And then I got a permanent employment with APSI. APSI is an is Italian uh, organization that used to work in support of people in the camp. So when I got that employment as a social worker, I was given responsibility to take care of these girls who are coming from the LRF. And I think the first week, the first month that I, I started working full-time with APSI, I met a young girl who had returned with a baby and she was pregnant with the second child. She was abducted and taken and during the abduction, her village was destroyed, her parents were killed. I fam our family moved away from the original village. So we couldn't even trust where the family 
were for a while. So because we did not have a proper structure by then, this girl had nowhere to go. She was brought to a temporary reception center. And when she was released to go home, she was released to go, but where to go? She ended up on the street. She ended up on the street, which would expose such a lot of risk because she was ready to give, a, to give birth to a baby. Remember in those early days, people never wanted to associate with the girls who were carrying children of the rebels. Remember the girls were abducted, the family, the, the community were destroyed, the rebels were killing people. So these girls who had children from rebels were seen as a reject, total reject, because some of them would, would, would bear children who look like the rebels. And this is the very rebel that has done atrocity in the community. So they were total reject. So even the closest relatives could not accept this girl in it's their homes. Even the, the community, no community member would accept. So I, I just look at this girl and then I compare with this little girl or person. I felt compassion with her. I brought her into my house. I was living in a one room apartment, just a single room, no kitchen, no nothing. So I had to bring this girl in until she gave birth. And after giving birth, she had nowhere to go. I had to meet her medical bill. I had to take care of her needs, like buying babies wear. I'm taking care. Remember, she had also another child that was already given birth from the bush. So I brought this girl in, and after about some few months, she became okay. The baby started growing up well, and I just felt that no, she can't just stay here. Let her do something. We did not have a proper structure of counseling and rehabilitation. So I got one of them, old man who was doing tailoring uh, in, 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 a, in a neighborhood. And I spoke to him to help mentor these girls, teach her how to make some clothes, teach her how to make some baby wears. And this man, I, I, I told him the story and he felt responsible. He gave him the fatherly care and support. And some few months, the girl learned how to make clothes, learned how to, to, to sew baby's clothes. And that really started bringing hope into me, started restoring that, yes, even if I lost this little girl, Rachel, I'm still, I'm still able to help. And she, she turned my life around because when I look at myself and I look at her, I just compared and said, I'm much better. And I know I can do much better. This is a girl who has been in the bush. She has lost all the parents. She came with pregnancy and she has a little baby and she can do something better. She turned my life up and down. And meeting her was another journey of starting my calling to support many girls. And really reflects that power of one person. So your impact on her, her impact on you. And then the influence of the man who was the tailor by giving her a job and giving her training. So then she was able to draw an income from it. And I think everyone around the Zoom call is well familiar with the importance of the economic empowerment of women, which is another conversation I don't want to distract for the time being. Alice, how did you come to set up Pedere Girls Academy that was recently renamed to Koro? So, you know, after meeting this girl, her name was Kovia, I just realized that I think there's there's, there's more that women need. 
we just don't need rehabilitation. We just don't need, you know, talking and training. I think we need action in economic empowerment, getting into doing some uh, livelihood and life skill that can help us stand. Because the story of this girl was so amazing that afterwards she, she started working for this man. And after about six months, she developed a good relationship with someone who took care of her and the two children. But she continued doing her business and became so independent. And, you know, from the story of this girl, uh, I decided that I need to do something for the women. But honestly, I didn't know how to do it because that was the time that 99% uh, of our population moved away from their villages and they were brought into internally displaced camp. The entire Northern Uganda, people lost their homes, they lost their property, they lost their wealth, cattles were taken by the rebels and they came to the camp. And it was so overwhelming that you would imagine where am I going to start from? So I decided to come back to Pader, where is my village and where the project apparently is. And honestly, I didn't know what to do, but I said, maybe the best is just uh, come, sit with them, pray with them, encourage them. Because that was the time that the rebels went and ambushed the, the UNHCRA refugee camp. There were Sudanese uh, refugee in my village. They destroyed the camp. They also abducted and killed some staff of the UN and the UN declared, but they are no go zone. So we remain on our own with the military, with the rebels, where you cannot even be, be differentiate who is the rebels and who is the, 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 the military, the government military, because they were all wearing the same uniform. So the people became so confused. So I decided to come in that confusion. And I said, let me go and stay with my people. If I die with them, the better. If I help them, the better. I came just to, to stay with them and die without anything. But of course, the story of this little girl keep on triggering in my mind. So when I came, I think the first day we went and pray with one of the ladies. And uh, you, know, you know, when you have faith, I, I kindly had a vision about this project because my first vision when I came to Pade was, you know, where the project is. I, I saw a dead big tree lying with no leaves dry. And that same night, I honestly, I saw that big tree rising up with big shades and leaves. And it is like the first thing I came in the morning, I walked because I came to Pade night, I walked across the street and I saw a very big tree with a lot of leaves. And I went there and I sat and started meditating and praying. And then I went back. And then the following day, I asked the lady that I was staying with to come with me so that we pray. So we came and we prayed. I, I did not connect what we are doing with the, the vision of the trees. And then, you know, we would come every day with my friend, the lady that I was staying with. And people started seeing us coming every morning. And a lot of women, began to come one by one. The church leader started coming and we started praying under that tree. From that moment, a lot of women opened up. Remember I told you there were so many rebels and there was they, 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 they were also government military. So even if people, when they comes, 
the government military were protecting people. There was high cases of sexual abuse among the military. Uh, the children were still being abducted by the rebels. So when we started praying, you know, would give the opportunity for women to share and you could hear so much painful story. They would say that my daughter was raped last night. I don't know whether it was rebels or it was the military. My child was abducted. So women started sharing the story. Anybody would, would, somebody would ask, where are the men? I think the men have already lost confidence. They have already lost the ability to protect their family when they came to the camp. So the rest of the responsibility and the burden were on women. So we began the fellowship. And before we knew it grew so big that we started going into the camps instead of coming here. And out of that, uh, uh, because there was no international NGO, there were no humanitarian workers. So a lot of children were coming and they're being rescued by the military. And a while after a while, the military said, no, you help us and cancel these girls because we saw you Paul, been praying and you've been praying with this lady. We cannot handle these girls. So they handed the first lot of girls who returned from the, <clears throat> from the LRA from us. They provided tents, they provided the feeding and other things. And that very same year, World Food also came back because people already in the camp and they started providing the food. So we said, yes, we are not handle this girl, but with no skills. But remember these ladies, they've already developed a, a peer support among themselves. You know, after sharing what happened to me last night, the other one share, we would pray together, we would carry them, we would talk them. None of us were qualified counselors, but sharing the story and listening to each other and, you know, supporting and encourage them, help them to build a very strong resilience that they, would, they were able to, to cope with different situations in the camps. So when these girls were given to us, even if we, the women did not have counseling background, even they're not qualified counselors, they were able to listen to them. They're able to be there like a mother. And when the girls became so overwhelming, we had a connection with a different organization. UNICEF came in to provide nutrition. Remember some of the girls would come when they're pregnant and they would give birth. And then they saved the children came in and then we realized this is something we are not going to do informally. So we said, this must be a counseling organization. So we named it Christian Counseling Fellowship because the only tool we had for counseling was a Bible. And the words of God, which were written in the Bible, we would speak the word of encouragement and share with the girls. We would speak stories <clears throat> like the stories of Joseph who was sold by his brothers and you know, through faith, through commitment, through having confidence in hope and walking in faith, Joseph was able to raise to the level of the prime minister. You know, those stories were stories that were shared with the girls and many of them began to grow strong and build hope. So we felt that should be the name and we started uh, the rehabilitation center called Christian Counseling Fellowship Rehabilitation Center. We had to formalize it with the government of Uganda and we registered it as a local organization. And after registration, you know, um, uh, international community began to come and support us. 
we speci specifically focus on supporting girls who were abducted because their problem were unique. First of all, they were rejected by their own family, their, their own community, because their children traditionally, traditionally when you're given birth, giving birth out of wedlock, you are rejected. They call you all sort of name, they call you second hand, they very negative because every girl is supposed to be married and married decently. So this girl, the fact that they were given, they were given birth by the rebels, the children to the rebel was a total reject. Number two, the atrocities that the rebels caused in the community, most people link to the girl that yes, this is the children. Some of them wanted even to kill the children who were babies from the rebels. To the point that a mother would want to accept her daughter but would not want to take the grandchild because it belonged to the rebels. So we said, yes, for boys, they had also had their own issues. But looking at our level and looking at the capacity that we had, and many of us, the women had gone through a lot of different challenges. We knew that we could give offer better for the women. So we formed that center and we were able to give proper rehabilitation and counseling to these girls. So um, we did that for close to five years until when the war subsidized. And we realized that yes, we did the social rehabilitation, we did the psychological support, but one key thing that was still lacking in the lives of these girls were education. Remember most of them came when they were pregnant, some of them had babies, some of them were above their school going age. So there were no school would accept them to go with their babies. So we fell in 2007 to set a special school for these girls who could go and attend classes with their babies. They would be, you know, uh, uh, spend the time after classes with their babies. So for the first year, it was not easy. That was 2007 and 2008, we set up formal secondary and vocational training uh, education for these girls. And we had to set a special daycare that the girls could drop the babies at the daycare center as they go to classes. So it grew and became so influential that would support a lot of girls um, education and other things. So that's how we, 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 we began the process of establishing this for the girls from the rehabilitation center. We did the social rehabilitation, but realized that education as a key for their success also was very important. And Alison, there's a beautiful story I'd love you to share. When your girls went to their first sports athletics day, can you tell us what the attitude and the behaviour of these students from other schools was towards the girls and then your girls' response to their taunts? So the, the, the fact that most of our girls, of course, had this rejection from even their own community. So when we opened the school, of course, we opened it as a formal a school, except we have the special students. So they were allowed to participate in all the curriculum activity like sports and games. So when we send them to participate, you know, they were, they were, they were welcome with a very negative social stigma, mm -hmm. calling them names, mothers, calling them second hands. You know, they would sing with them. And you know, you feel like you want to respond, you feel like you want to, want to react. 
And you know, the girl would say that, don't worry, we'll show them that we are not what they think. And the girl was so determined that for the next, for the last, for the first three years, they were able, they were able to take position one in the sporting activities for, 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 for female. And for the three consecutive years, they did that. And then the final year, because we only open senior one to senior four, so it takes four years for the girls to take on the national exam. So the fourth year, when the national exam came, the girls were the best in the district. And I think this took us a lot of process for the girls, for the community, to realize that these girls is not what they think. Because mm. when, the, when the results came, they were the best. And when the sporting and games uh, uh, results came, they were the best. So that the commitment of the girls, the confidence in themselves, the commitment in the academic and the sporting gave change the community perspective towards these girls. I adore the tenacity and I admire it so much that going from being taunted with secondhand goods, which is something that just strikes at my heart every time I hear it, but for the girls to just back themselves and to just demonstrate and to change that perspective that simply because they've had a child in circumstances well outside their control, that they are not valueless, that they have so much more to give. And how has the school performed? You mentioned it briefly, but academically, in addition to sport, they've performed incredibly well academically um, yes. compared to the rest of the I mean, considering the background of this girl, they were at far average the performance of the normal schools. Hmm. They did so well. And our strategy was, of course, PIP was very influential here. Our strategy was to, to, to help them complete Form 4 and help them fix them into institutional. So we sent the majority to nursing training and midwives. They went and trained as midwives and nurses. And uh, some went to be trained as teachers who could go and teach in primary schools. And after completing from our school, we partnership with other institutions outside our school and outside the district. And the girls were sent to train there. And when they returned, their life was totally changed because those who finished nursing immediately began to work. And those who did the teaching, it began, we had the agreement with the Ministry of Education that most of these girls will be employed back into their own community. Why did we do that? Because this was the, the girls who were rejected from their own community. Now they have completed the studies and working and earning some money. So the purpose was to bridge that community attitudes and lack of confidence that a girl who has a baby is nothing. So when we send these girls back, we had a big celebration and the community were so humbled and they, they, they said, we, we, were, we were, we did not consider these girls, but now we can see that they can be something. And that one alone changed a lot of community attitudes towards girls' education. I remember some families that their girls were not even abducted, but they were victims of post-conflict violence, then they fell pregnant. They were brought to school by their own father 
who confessed that I want my girl to study because I have realized that education has no limit, whether you're pregnant, whether you have a child, you can mm -hmm. study. So it really changed community perspective and towards, towards the girls. So this was uh, uh, the, the best part, I think, for all our struggle with the girls and education to see that the community can accept them freely. The true transformational impact. And can you tell the story about what occurred when you had to seek government authorization or approval to be officially recognized as a school and what occurred despite the attitude of the chap sitting behind the desk and his reticence to accredit you? I think one of the biggest challenge I had was to have the school accredited by the government. Uh, to most of these education officers, to them they were shocked and they did not know what to do. They, they did not know how to handle these girls and none of them wanted to commit in recommending the school to be accredited. So I went to one of the, the district officer in the district and he said, no, I don't know and I cannot give it to you. I cannot recommend, let me write you a letter and go to Kampala, which is the central uh, government. And when I went there, they, 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 had, they had the same experience. They said, but how can we do this? We don't know how to do this. Who is going to do this? A lot of questions. And nobody was willing to give me the letter, but I persisted and I asked them to show me the policy that shows that a child should not study. A child who has been a victim of war, a child who has a baby, a child who is traumatized cannot go to school. I insisted, I insisted, like I stayed in Kampala for three, four days, going to the office every day. And the, the, the one of the commissioners said, let's give this letter. And the, then when they're giving the letter, they said, we are giving the letter, but we are not responsible for if anything happened to these children. They said nothing will happen to them because they have been through more than just being in school. So it wasn't easy, but I kept persisting and I kept persisting. So until they gave us the school. But surprisingly, after five years, the government took over our school as the best school in re reintegration and retention of girls into school. So it was just a matter of somebody picking up, taking the courage to go. So I took that courage and I did it. Yeah. And that's where you were just so phenomenal. And it just really serves as such a genuine inspiration that one person can have the dedication and the tenacity despite so many challenges and so many aspects that were against you that were seemingly insurmountable and yet you just started and then the transformational impact on the lives of so many girls but then those girls themselves proved to be inspiration to the community and then the fathers to themselves bring their own daughters down to recognize the value of their daughters having an education. Alice I would like to speak about Tokoro today and what's happened over the last couple of years since the book was published. But before we do, Pip, if I could just ask you some questions from yeah. the perspective of the author with Alice and telling her story. How did you meet Alice and what drew you to tell her story so beautifully and eloquently? Oh, thanks, Elena. Can I just start by saying it's um, thank you so much for having us because it's really it's actually really wonderful for Alice and Alice to be able to relate her story for me to be part of that as well but for us to be reminded of 
this journey that mm -hmm. Alice has been on with the girls because the pandemic has been very hard on the school. Um, and Alice and I work together from week to week on what's happening there now and how we're, what happens in the future and how can we build a future for these girls. So we're, we're, we're often focused on the, what, what's ahead. And so it's actually really lovely to, to go back into the story. And I, even hearing Alice's story uh, again now, you know, it stirs up a lot within me. And in writing the book, um, Alice went through a whole process of healing and uh, having told her story and having carried so much and, and there was a real healing process for her when the book, uh, when we got to the end of her story and she was able to kind of read it again. Um, I, but I met Alice, uh, I met Alice back in 2006 at a conference in Kampala and um, I was, I was there for um, a development conference, a microfinance conference and a church conference. And we met at the church conference and then she was in Australia the next year. And so we got to know each other a little bit more. And I really was quite intrigued. And because I was involved in microfinance with opportunity at that point, um, we took uh, David and Carol Bissot, the founder of Opportunity and Andrew, we went to Padere and we, we were just looking at what are the economic opportunities there? What is there something we could be helping with? Is there something we could be doing? And so we met with communities and we heard what they were going through. And then we got to Padere and we arrived at this school that had just opened and this is 2008. And Alice was there and there were these girls with babies and the impact was just uh, incredible. I mean, on, on me, Personally, um, I it was beyond anything that I'd seen in you know very poor communities in Philippines and even in the worst communities in India. There was something about these girls with their babies and they were so young, and I I didn't know their stories. I learned a lot of their stories um, at that time and then obviously beyond. Um, but I was just very I was really um, moved to the core by by um, that situation. And so I, um, I, I, guess, I guess since then, I've probably been 14, 12 times or something like that. Um, and each time, um, well, one of those times, um, Alice and I sat down and she said, um, she said, I think it would be, uh, it would help people and it would help the girls if I could tell my story, which is part, partly their story. And so we decided that we would we would tell her story, and uh, but then of course we were on different continents. So then it became a whole complicated process of uh, of gathering the information. So I would go back over there to do something, but then I would always take time with Alice, and we would find a place, and we would just the story would just unfold, and I'd just sort of gather, gather and gather and gather. So it was actually a very long process but I think how was, long did it take you well from the first conversation till the time it was published was actually nine years um, yeah but a lot of that was um you know I mean I think it had to be told over a long time because from a live story when we first talked to when the story was published actually there was an enormous amount of progress in the girls in the situation of peace that was there in Alice's story um, you know it, it 
it, it had to evolve, but we also had to, because um, of the way we wrote it um, as co-authors, you had it had to be a deep process. It couldn't just be, well, tell me a story and I'll write it. And I didn't, you know, and it wasn't third person, it was first person. So it had to be very much Alice's voice. It had to be her, it had to be with her in the bush when she was hiding. And so and you do that so masterfully, like you are an incredible storyteller <laughs> with Alice's input as well. And the two of you collaborating, as you say, to tell Alice's story, story. But as I mentioned that I read it during the early days of COVID and to just sort of be in this little cocoon world where you're just so transported and particularly hearing the early part of Alice's story when the LRA set fire to the grass and that was done to try to um, get to the children, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah, so it very much had to be um, one, one visit. Um, I don't know, do you remember that visit, Alice, when we, were, when we went with Doreen to your village? And yeah, I think that was 2010. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, I, thought, yes. and I was there where, she, where her village was and where she ran from. And so I just was like, what was that like? And so I took my shoes off and started going through the bush, trying to imagine what it was like for all these little kids running in the bush and just like how painful it would be. And, you know, this, it's, and, um, and, and Alice and her sister were panicking. <laughs> that I was that I might hurt my feet um and, and it was was like beautiful Alice I mean it's, you went yeah. you went through and you worried you know about my feet but that it was it was a um the process of going through Alice's life at, in that depth but also being with her um and trusting each other is a big part of the whole writing process that um you know, always uh, as the as the co-author, I was always aware that Alice was really entrusting her. She was entrusting her life story to another person. I mean, if you can imagine any of us doing that, you know, we we it's a very difficult thing to do. But Alice was um, very, um, you know, the, there was there were times that she would be telling me stories, and we would both be there crying, and and we just like no more for today. You know, there was so some of it was so painful for both of us. And, it, and then when I came to writing it, um, there were many days that I just sat crying at my computer because I was writing about my dear friend, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I you know, loved and cared for a lot. And I just hated that, you know, that was painful to write about some of those things. So um, I remember swinging by your place when I happened to be in Sydney a few years ago and um, few years before you had completed the book mm -hmm. and you had just dropped Alice to the airport and she had been in Australia to work on the book and I remember you making me a green tea and it's like your mind was still in Alice's stories and you spoke a little bit about what she had conveyed to you and it was you were so heavily dedicated to telling Alice's story with such an integrity and You've done such a beautiful job, the two of you. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's living funny living in Sydney, but actually most a lot of the time, as you say, my head was in Uganda. Well, in fact, you told me that it was um, 
Alice had recounted to you the story of the massacre. And, you know, I just sort of swung in for the afternoon to catch up and it was just, yeah, really impactful, your dedication to telling Alice's story. Um, beyond Alice's own experiences, are there stories of the girls that have particularly remained with you? Well, you know, they have, I mean, there's one, uh, the story of Pauline in the book. Um, I don't know if others would remember Pauline. Um, and sh she was, she's someone that, that I am in touch with that, um, you know, for all these years. Uh, and she's, she, um, she and Alice are still very close, but uh, Pauline's story just continues. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're really hoping that, uh, you know, we're not quite sure where, where it will go, but um, she's, a, she's a wonderful leader. And she, she was the young woman that lost a baby. Um, she was abducted at 14, lost a baby, uh, which was actually extracted from, like it, it, in childbirth, she almost died. And, um, and she lost her baby in the bush on her own. Um, and and um, it was buried there. And then she was airlifted out um, and had almost, um, died in the process but the UN was in negotiations with the LRA so they were able to get her out to Kenya and uh, in Kenya she was very clever and she had uh, she was able to get an extra sim card and she was able to the LRA was still uh, you know watching her in Kenya saying well she knows too much we'll have to you know she can't stay we'll have to get her back and she was saying yes yes of course I'll come back at the same time she was talking to uh, Alice and I think it was Save the Children, um, one of those, and uh, and planning her escape. And so, when I met her, she was the head girl at the school. And as I got to know her and hear her story and see what an incredible young woman she was and what an incredible leader, how motivated she was to be educated. Um, yeah. And so we've just. I've just sort of tracked with her. She's now doing her master's. Um, she topped her class in her undergraduate degree in Kampala. And we've managed to get someone to put her through a master's. Um, and she plans to go, she plans to stay in Northern Uganda and work on programs there. But she'll come yeah. in with an education that will really help her. And there's, um, there's Sorry. If I just mentioned, a couple of us were honoured to see Pauline last year and she had just had a little bub oh, yes. with her husband. Was that bub number two or three with her new husband? Two, two of our kids, two of them. Yes, yeah. and it was... The second time. Yeah, and I think the bub was only days old, perhaps, but she is a phenomenally... A week, woman. Some few weeks old. Yeah, yeah. very tiny. Some few weeks old, yeah. She, yeah, there's a lot of the girls, you know, I, I, uh, there's one, uh, we, we set up a clinic um, uh, about five years ago now, isn't it, Alice, that the MCA, yeah. the, it's a maternal and child health clinic, and um, there's a midwife that's been there from the beginning, who was a student at the school, and was one of the girls that got a scholarship to go into midwifery. Oh, wow. And now, you know, we have plan big plans for improvements to maternal health and a partnership. And I think I mentioned, 
and um, she'll be very much a part of that. And so there's a whole cohort of young women who are midwives um, and, and some have stayed in Padere, so. And will that be with our magnificent friend, Dr. Andrew Browning from yep. Italy, Africa? Yes, yes. Did you want to um, speak a little bit about that? Um, or shall we do it as a to be continued and I'll send around the note to everyone? Oh, no, I, we'd love to talk about it because it's yeah. very, it's incredibly exciting that this, um, the clinic, um, you know, the clinic just, goes along I mean and um, it's 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 in a quite a crowded building um, but when we started it we did because Alice about 10 years ago Alice said to me I just had this dream that girls you know will feel loved when they give have babies they you know they have to have a place where they're well cared for otherwise it's in the bush it's you know they're rejected by families and I just want women to really feel loved in childbirth and so we we sort of jumped in and, on, and, and set up this clinic. Um, and it, it, we've had, I think, um, I think it's about 700 babies this year. Really? <laughs> yeah, there've been, there will be about 2000 opened. And um, out of that, there's a mobile clinic as well that goes out. And when we looked at all the numbers at the end of last year of what was, what was happening, um, it turns out that with the mobile clinic and the clinic in town, there's something like 60,000 people have actually been touched by, you know, might be going out and doing immunizations with the, with the government people, but a lot of it that's around antenatal care and, um, and the safe birth program that we're doing. So, um, so and can I just jump in very quickly, just for those who, have not yet experienced the magnificence of Dr. Andrew Browning. Very briefly, he trained under Dr. Catherine Hamlin. He's the nephew of Val Browning. And so I highly also, I highly recommend in addition to School of Restoration, um, the hospital by the river, which tells the story of Dr. Catherine Hamlin and her and Dr. Reg Hamlin. And that they, in 1959, they went to Ethiopia on a three-year contract to set up a school for midwifery and then they pioneered the treatment of fistula and it's been demonstrated that effectively the specialists who treat fistula around the world have all been trained by the Hamlins or by um I've just forgotten the name of is it Gashi um, um, is that a European doctor there's a um no, no they're sort of the, the lady yeah yeah. So her book, I've got it on my credenza, and it is Healing Lives by Sue Williams, an Australian author. So also recommend it because it um, tells more of the story of the Hamlets. But Andrew, in addition to training with the Hamlins, he's then set up Maternity Africa. And whereas the Hamlins Fistula Hospital is focused on Ethiopia with their outreach programs, and his aunt Val lives with the nomadic Afar people as a midwife. And Afar is the hottest habitable place on earth. Andrew's Maternity Africa operates in Ethiopia, Tanzania. They, in the last couple of years, have set up a hospital in South Sudan, of all places. And then he also undertakes and is engaged by the governments to perform fistula camps in Kenya, Uganda, and elsewhere. And I'm probably missing a couple of other countries where he works. He is just such a humble, brilliant now he's there at the moment actually right yeah 
So we've we've signed an MOU that he will he their um, his foundation here, Barbara May Foundation and Tecora Foundation, will do a joint partnership to um, to improve or to build a new maternity hospital idea because at the moment the there's no there's no blood bank within two hours there's no uh, theater within two hours and uh, you know just there's no separate ward for newborns so they're going with the older kids and get sick and so we're 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 launching into a uh, a project to to change that situation for for that area so well, you whistle when that's all crystallized and we'll rally troops here and see what we can. Yeah, well, we are doing it. We are doing a, an event, a joint event in Brisbane on the 3rd of June. 3rd so of June. I'll let yeah. you know. Irish, ladies. There's other people who want to come and, and um, do that because it's, it's, it's wonderful because it's, it's um, you know, it's Andrew with all that wealth of experience. He'll, he'll train people. He'll train the midwives and the doctors and, wow. the doctor and, and you know, be part of what's happening in Padere as well so we are so privileged to be here listening to Alice's story and your story and then to know that Andrew's going to be involved as well like just truly incredible humans who are transforming I know I keep saying it but just transforming lives and restoring hope despite the stigma and the shame and the stench associated with fistula so I'll stop bleating on now and Alice if I could come back to you can you tell us what the situation has been in Padere since 2020 with COVID, you were in Australia when the international borders were closed in early 2020 and then stayed here for a few months. And I know that you received word while you were here that because the school had to close, there was a high pregnancy rate amongst the teenage girls because they were stuck at home with perpetrators. Yeah. Uh... I returned in September 2020, and one month later, the school was able to open. Oh. Oh, a lot of girls definitely were affected. Many of them felt pregnant. In our school, we had our own students who stopped in 2020 and came back to school. I think we had about uh, five, five teenage mothers. That is 2020. And then those sat, but majority were not able to come back to school. Reason being one, their parents could not afford to pay the school because every economic activity, the businesses were closed down. The farming was very poor as the food crop was not enough. So the parents could not sell that the children were home. So in 2020, very few parents were able to send back the children to school. So in 2021, our school was open partially. So we had like form one, form two, and then as the school was going to open again at once, in June, we went to lockdown. The longest lockdown we had was in June 2021 to January. That's when the school opened. And I think the second lockdown was worse, was terrible. That parents, they have lost income. They have lost control of their children. They were living in anger. There was no food. So a lot of girls completely missed out the opportunity to, to continue living with their parents because of the poverty. Many of them again went, became a victim of sexual violence. Some of them were married officially by their parents because they could not afford. So the 2021 lockdown was the worst lockdown on education. 
Now, when the school was open in 20, early this year, January, we had seen the greatest number of the girls. We, have, we had opportunity to expand to three institutions. We expanded uh, uh, in the other parts of the district where we had some New Zealand lady who could not continue after the lockdown and she handed the facility to us. We had about 50 teenage mothers in that school. 50. We are due to open 50 of them. 50 From of them. Five that you had at the beginning of COVID. Yes, this is just the new, is the new place that we are going to. So far we are registered wow. up 50 teenage mothers who are all starting the school next, next month. That is in Kitgum. And then in our new current center, we have about 23 teenage mothers. Basically, from one and from two are the greatest population. But then you, you still see that these parents cannot afford to meet the demands of girls and their babies. Because for the last two years, there's not been any active businesses. Because when the lockdown from 2020 to 2021, all the transport was locked down. People could only use private transport. And the greatest population cannot afford the private transport. No public transport was allowed, no motorcycle was allowed. So most of their community were stranded with their agricultural products, which is the best mean, that's the easiest mean of getting their income. So from 2020 to 2021, there was no business at all. So when the school opened, the girls, many of them were not able to come back to school. When we had scared the scholarship for 300, the number that turned up were over 500 girls. Alice, your screen's just frozen for a moment. We'll just um, give it a beat to catch up. Yeah, that's not unusual, actually. I mean, it's, it's the network goes down regularly in Uganda. Did, did you want to pick up Alice's thread of conversation because you're so heavily involved? Yeah, oh, it looks like we've lost her. Oh, no, we haven't. Um, yeah, so I, I, the girls, apparently, it's settling down well. They had to actually, um, we, we, um, we helped them with a whole campaign to go onto radio to find the girls and even uh, initially finding the teachers because the teachers, oh, wow. I mean, you know, when the school closed for such a long period of time, the teachers might be out fishing, you know, to feed their families. So, you know, there was a, not, a lot of ongoing um, hardship there. Uh, so I think we they did very well to get the 300 um, girls back to school. Mm -hmm. um, um, so we, we're just waiting to hear, you know, how that goes. There's probably capacity for a lot more, but that's what they have at the moment. And is there a government program around vaccines? And was there any government support whatsoever in terms of providing food or were there the NGOs in there or just because it was such a massive lockdown that like with many parts of the world there was just no access to food well i mean i think in northern uganda they grow a lot of food so they can okay. usually get the staples of food so i don't think um you know they couldn't afford to buy Sorry. The I lost the... we're just we're just talking about food the food situation uh and yeah and... i lost the internet because the power shut down so the internet also went off <laughs> Yes, sorry. No, that's okay. Alice, we were just um, wondering about during the lockdowns and during 2020 and 2021, what was the situation in terms of food 
from what the communities could grow themselves or was there any support from NGOs or from the government at all? No, there was not, there was little support from the government. The NGO, most of the NGOs closed their office and they went away. And after now, as I speak, a lot of international NGO never returned back to Uganda because of funding problems. And also a lot of them lost the contract and they lost the, the, the a lot of their staff died of COVID. Some of them were, who were, you know, the first COVID was terrible. So many international NGOs closed their office and few of them returned. And those who returned, returned purely into the refugee camps or emergency responses. But in the community where there are no refugees, there are no NGOs. So people are on their own with very little support from the government. And does Tukoro get, uh, receive support from government or your, you rely on donations? How are you funded? We, we 80% we rely on donation. And then the 20% we generate local income from our different places. Like we have uh, accommodation, the guest houses, we have cottages, but also we have some farm agricultural activities that are attached to the school. The government give us very little percent in terms of um, medication vaccine where we get free. That's the only support we get from the government. And then they giving us the operational lances. But finances, another thing, the government does not have capacity to do that. And in terms of the crops that are suitable to grow in northern Uganda, particularly around Kader, what are they? We normally grow grains, soya beans, corn, and beans. These are the crops that do well in Kader. And they're in the good season. Uh, there can be a very good harvest if there's access for transport. And, and that's how most parents use to sell those crops and they use for paying the fees for their children. They contribute for the school fees for their children. And there's a reason for asking this question, but would cotton grow in Northern Uganda? Yes, we do also grow cotton very much. I've got a man to introduce to you then. John Cook, I'm giving you a call out right now, buddy. I'm coming for I, you. I've, oh, I've yes, you've spoken to John? Spoken to John, yes, yes. We've, we've had that conversation. I must follow that up too because here we... Well, it's a reminder for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> and um, about, about cotton growing? Yes. About cotton growing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're, we're just... Well, um. We're cultivating, as it were, plans for you, Alice. We've got some things in mind. But Alice, um, what is the next, what do you think the next 12 months, three years holds for Tokoro and the Girls Academy there in terms of what are the offerings to girls in terms of education, the childminding, vocational career paths? I think for the next three years, for the next three years, what we are hoping is we have to look at the, the first two years will be totally rehabilitative education because we are going to have these girls who will still have this trauma and the challenges from the lockdown, the girls who are sitting and joining senior one next year. And then the current senior one and senior two would need 
remember about 20%, about 20% are breastfeeding mothers. So this will need purely rehabilitative education, including scholarship, counseling and support within the school. So the next three years, we are looking at that uh, uh, strategy to help these girls. So within the four years, we'll see that the girls who are coming would have responsibility from the parents contributing. And Techwater would uh, have the different initiatives like improving, integrating farming as skills in the education that we grow our own food with less money spent on buying food, which is the highest thing that we are doing now. But from next year and the coming year, we would want to concentrate on that. But we also want to see girls, give them opportunity, girls who can go to university and girls who can go for institutional training, go to high school and then go to institutional training. We, we are very concerned about nursing and midwives because it's still a biggest challenge that affects uh, my rural community. We don't have a, uh, a lot of midwives. We have few nurses. And every time the government open up recruitment to nurses and midwives, they are always not enough. And this region is still lacking. So we are looking at, you know, after our school, again, we work with other institutions so that this girl can trained to be nurses and midwives, and they come back and work in their own community. And also we want to see that, you know, we strengthen the capacity of the school, that they can be able to absorb more girls and be dynamic to respond to their different needs. So um, we, we, may, we may not still rule out the teenage mothers because we realize that, you know, even after war, now the lockdown comes, who is the victim? the girls yeah. even before you know that there's war or no war pandemics pandemics or no pandemics if any problems social injustice is still the highest now this is incorporated with poverty and 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 and, and lack of education the greatest population of our women are not going to school it, it takes a woman to value education for her child remember we are fighting the circle of uneducated population. Now this lockdown has made it worse. So we still look at Tekworo as uh, a, a, a... Oh, no. I'll just um, give it a, a moment because yeah, yeah, it comes back through. So you don't want um, to. Oh, you're about, Alice, sorry, it, it just froze a moment, but I. Anticipate yeah. that you're going to, if you could just repeat that last minute or so, that it's the girls who are those who suffer the most. And if I could actually throw this question in, because I know that we've had a conversation around it previously, that if you could address the UN today or tomorrow, what is the message that you would give to them in the context of how the UN traditionally resolves conflicts and how they appease and negotiate what goes to the men as opposed to what goes to the women and the girls? I think, I think as far as the conflict resolution and conflict uh, rehabilitation, the post-conflict rehabilitation, I think the UN need to put mass investment in educating women and girls because a woman will, will stand in our community and speak for the rest of the community, including the men, 
the children and other girls. But when you rehabilitate and you put a lot of empathy in general investment, water, uh, capital investment like the roads, we miss out a lot. We miss out a lot on individual women we could influence and support the family. Because if these girls are educated, if these girls are well given uh, investment in education, they can transform their own community with the little knowledge and the resources that we have. So I would, I would, I would really recommend you and invest more in education. Education, both formal and informal education for women and girls, because every girl who is born in a rural area, in a developing country, is already, this is already pre, predeposed to sexual violence. Mm -hmm. This is already predeposed to poverty because we are not giving the, the, the foundation of investment in education. You, you can't just say you give education from the shortcut. Training women in microfinance is very important, but training women in education and additional microfinance and in income investment, it is very key. It also helps prevent a lot of sexual violence. It helps prevent maternal and child death. A educated woman would care about her health and the health of our unborn baby. So if UN would listen to the people in the community, they would change their funding directions and would reduce, minimize a lot of this problem that we are facing today in the society, especially in developing society. To empower the women and girls through education, which the natural impact of that is then the economic empowerment of women and to be able to address maternal health at such a fundamental level that is often put on the back burner or it just doesn't appear on the international gatherings of the, the G20 and other major international fora. Yeah. I'm conscious of time and I would like to open up the questions to the other ladies around the conversation. Does anyone have any questions for Alice or for Pip? I have <laughs> <laughs> I've made a list while you've been talking. <laughs> oh, Go ahead. Uh, I'm Jackie, pleased to meet you. Um, so, so very happy um, to be blessed enough to meet with you both and to um, hear the story. I have recently finished your book and um, it stood out to me for a whole host of reasons. Um, the, first, the first thing on my list was about... Um, I travelled in Africa in 2000 and I went to eight countries, but Uganda was not one of them because we weren't allowed to go there at that time. And as I was reading your book and it was coming through that time frame and I was looking at what was happening and thinking, wow, while I was doing this, that was going on there. And um, I was on this trip of a lifetime for me and you were trying to save lives and um, it it just shows the paradox in our world. And Africa for me was a life-changing experience without even knowing all of that. Um, and I'm gonna get all teary now. Um, I changed, came home, changed careers, did a whole host of things because of that and always planned to get back. And um, after reading the book, I just was so, again, um, wanna continue that journey for me over there. I've got lots of questions, but I know other people will as well. So I'll just start with this one. 
I had no understanding of what was going on in your country at that time. And I, I see you said earlier that I think um, CCF was the first time that you had the exposure to internationals. Um, and I wonder before that, um, like uh, in the 80s and 90s, when all these massive things were happening in your life, losing little girls to HIV AIDS and all those sorts of things, did you have any perception of the wider world and what what everybody else was doing? No, no, we're just, we're just surrounded in our own community with no hope of even looking outside the world, not even thinking anybody would think about us and imagine yeah. what we are doing because we had everything cut off, no communication. We didn't have tele, tele, telephone at that time. We didn't have electricity at that time. So we were just on our own. <clears throat> Alice, could you yeah. speak about once you set up the Dare Girls Academy, that you were given a satellite phone and that that is, and you were effectively the voice of Northern Uganda to be able to give some kind of communication or um, intelligence to the UN about what the situation was because the NGOs had left Northern Uganda. So that was in 2000, 2000, 2002 to 2003 when things were already too bad. And that was far, far much later after I've already moved away from the village and set up the rehabilitation center. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember I told you that there was an attack and the, the refugee camp was, was attacked and destroyed and some member of the UN were taken. So when UNICEF learned that we are keeping the children, that's when they came in to begin to support us, to give us update. Because one thing that would happen, the UNICEF and other international NGO, they constructed an airfield that they would come and airlift the children because it was very difficult to, to, to travel by road. It was very risky. So the, sometimes they can uplift the children by helicopter. So the purpose of the satellite phone was to coordinate in case of emergency, in case of an attack, because sometimes an attack comes when the soldiers are not aware, but once UNICEF knows they can coordinate with other offices in Kampala to send reinforcement and for rescue. Thank you. And was there another question from around the call? Otherwise, Jacqueline, would you like to start working through your list? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm interested now, um, is, it, is it different in any way in respect of HIV AIDS? So um, do you have treatments? Do you have, has anything modernised in respect of the life expectancy for children who are infected? Yeah, I think there's a lot of changes in PASA-SV. There's a lot of health education. There's a lot of prevention measure. But also I think the one thing that helps is the air, there's already ARVs, there are drugs that can reduce the spread of the virus and also help in uh, curing some opportunistic infection, which used not to be there. So now at least the minimum risk of HIV-8 is low, except during the COVID, it, arise, it went so high, a lot of death was associated to HIV-8 because the, the, the community were not able to get the access to the drugs. And, you know, you miss the drugs for like two, three months. The fourth month, the immune system completely dropped. So a lot of deaths 
related to HIV AIDS went up in early in 2020 and 2021, but now I think they are stabilized. Yeah. And Alice, what is the best way that we in Australia can assist and support the work that you're doing? Now, I think one thing that we have been very successful in is having partnership. We are uh, people who would want to partnership with us financially and said, we are going to support maternal and child health programs. Someone said, oh, I want to sponsor maybe three girls for a year or for two. And some would said, oh, I have the skills. Maybe I want to combine like the medical team and we come and give training. So or PIP is coordinating that kind of partnership, but we have partnership and support in terms of finances and skill, you know, uh, to help us work. And would there be opportunities for training nurses and midwives from Australia now that international borders are opening up again to be able to, and I'm no doubt there'd need to be a number of conversations had, but would there be an opportunity for those students to undertake volunteer, uh, periods of volunteering over um, at PEDER, and that may occur in collaboration with Dr. Browning as well through Maternity Africa? I might just answer that one because I think having the partnership with Barbara May Foundation actually opens that door a lot more because, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's not a situation where you can just sort of throw a single person in to go and volunteer and I mean, I've, I've known lots of people that, that do that, but if, um, I think if there's a, like a, almost like a program or a, an ongoing situation it's actually more useful um, for the work on the ground to have sort of continuity and to have a, a, a plan around that um, so that's something that we're looking forward to having with um, in this partnership is being able to to have midwives and doctors who can go and they could and, and it would be a lot more um, organized and, and probably um, useful and Alice, what's the situation in terms of the students accessing computers? How many computers are in the school? Is that, from a practical perspective, sensible to have conversations with people in Australia where major companies, when they do their computer upgrades, for them to then donate computers to Peder? Or is, are there other logistical challenges associated with that, particularly around electricity? internet, does there need to be a broader package put together to facilitate that? I think because of unreliable source of power, we many schools prefer to use tablets that doesn't consume a lot of power. Because right now, as I'm speaking, the power just went off. That's why the, my internet yeah. was hard to shift into a, my phone using the hotspots and if it goes off it becomes the complete, complete power exactly so the the computer that we have a parent we have about 10 tablets that was donated by somebody in australia uh some about 2012 uh all type but it's still very practical we keep updating so donating if somebody's coming would be easy but shifting would cost more money than buying from here but if like people are coming, they can carry and they come along with it and that can make it possible. So because a lot of learning now, they're doing it online, 
there are a lot of uh, learning material that they send online and the teachers has to use that. So sometimes we have two laptops that is used with the projector and a few is the students who share the laptops and I mean the, the tablets, iPad, they can share together. And how many girls, are currently, how many do you have across the three facilities currently? And what do you envisage it might be in say 12 months once um, the community and the, and the school gets back on its feet and more girls will hopefully be able to rejoin their education post-COVID? Uh, for the two campus, we have about 310. I still need to cross-check the new campus. We, we, by, by, by next week, we'll know the exact number. But what I know, we have 50 girls there and they're all mothers. So that will bring us about 360 in the two campus. Okay. But those ones, the new campus, they haven't reported. So we're looking probably by next year that when we are going to have the number increase because the new intakes always start in January. We don't have a, a mid-term intakes. So the number is going to increase probably next year, more than this year. Okay. And ladies, did you have any other questions for Alice or Pip? I'm happy to ask another one if if there's yes, um, two, I've got two, but this is a fairly easy one. I think you talked earlier uh, about not speaking English very well um, some time ago. And I know in the book you talked about different languages, etc. but your English is impeccable now. So how did you perfect it and how has that happened? I think uh, taking me away to another district that doesn't speak my language helped me to speak uh, a better English though with very low vocabulary, not very strong. So getting away from my village was another thing. But also I've been, I've been presenting uh, in a, a different international, uh, like in the UN, like we had the MacArthur, like I've been coming to Australia during the women conference. And of course I've been helping some help in coaching and a little bit that helped me to express and of course share my stories, yeah. And you have addressed the UN on more than one occasion? Sorry? How many times have you addressed the UN in New York? Oh, I think in New York we went uh, once. Uh, that was in early 2006. And then in 2010 and 2014, we were in, um, on the global summit with, uh, on gender and sexual violence in the UK, where we met different dignitaries, of course, including the UN. Um, I think when we went with Pauline and Pauline was able to meet Angelina Jolie, that was very important. I think by then was the, the prime minister of the Britain. Uh, I forget his name. So we've been moving with Pauline to make presentations on the situation of girls and women in Northern Uganda. Yeah. And Philippa, just as we draw to a close, is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation and particularly forgive my delinquency of any part or any topics that I've overlooked. No, I mean, I, no, I think you've covered a lot of grounds there and thank you for, yeah, yeah I, I think, and Alice has explained the current situation. I think, um, you know, now more than ever is a great time to stay connected and just, you know, there are obviously um, like Jacqueline, they're, you know, very passionate about Africa and, and, and myself. And so I think, um, you know, it's just just great to actually 
have Alice here to be able to to remind us um, of you know I, I I think during the pandemic it's we probably haven't been looking outward as much and I think it's great to just be able to to get Alice's perspective it always you know for me it's always a reminder of just what we have in our country and never to take it for granted and just make the most of what you know all the opportunities that I've been given in life and I think that's you know that's a great thing to be reminded of. It certainly is a, a recalibration of um, our own circumstances and then taking back that more international and global view. Mm. I'll send an email around to everyone after we conclude and that'll include, if that's okay with you, um, Alice, your and Pip, your email addresses. So if any of the ladies would like to get in contact directly. And I know Jacqueline has incredible experience as both an accountant as an, and as a vet. So if you want to set up some kind of animal production, particularly around cattle, Alice, then I'm going to put that on Jacqueline's shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> I'm admiring your cat there, Jacqueline. Oh, yes. She's <laughs> she likes the company. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's very well behaved sitting there quite. She's very well behaved. I'm in a smaller place now, so she's my only animal, but I've had all sorts, so. Mm. <laughs> Apart from yes. my teenage children. <laughs> yeah. I was watching very... over you, but very close to you, I can see sleeping, just waiting for you to time to go. She is, she is. Yeah, yeah. Alice, is there anything further that you would like to say to the ladies while we're meeting him? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm so happy and humbled for you to spare your time uh, and listen to the story and just be there. It is very important. And I've always said that, you know, I think it's very important as women that we have the opportunity that we are blessed and gifted with special skills or certain skills. It has always been in my motto, at least that help one woman, raise one woman. If each one of us would hold a hand of a lady from any part of the world, I think we can walk the journey together and we transform the world. I believe that women, when they come together, they can make a strong progress. They can make us a very strong competitive progress that will help every part of the women in the rest of the world to move on. I think if the women are not supported, the world will never be in balance. And I want to thank the ladies for taking time to listen to us and journey with us. It is just the beginning and we hope we'll continue to journey to another level. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. And of all of your messages, there are two that really strike me. One is that the taunting of the girls by others of that their secondhand products and that they use products and their strength and their defiance to demonstrate that they aren't valueless simply because they have had a bub and that they have gone on to such phenomenal success and that is through you and your dedication. And as you've just um, articulated and through your story on how you started Pader was that it was about the women and the women coming together, but it starts with one person having the tenacity and the gumption to an extent, although it's a bit of a revolting word, but just to have the motivation to be able to step outside themselves to just start and that you didn't have everything planned and worked out and you didn't have a business plan and financial models and all of that jazz, 
you just started and you started with community and you started with engagement and demonstrating that compassion through women and then really harnessing the energy and daring of women to demonstrate what you've done over all these years to truly transform people's lives and I think most importantly to restore hope and dignity and encouragement so that the girls can draw inspiration and the community and the men and the boys can also draw inspiration of what is possible and can be achieved and that is going to continue to perpetuate well into the future. So thank you, Alice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank, thank you. you for your time. It was a pleasure to listen to you, Alice. Um, thoroughly enjoyed every minute. And thank you, Elena, for hosting wonderful questions. And like a, a mother of three girls, I have got, you know, I will empower my girls with your story and you know where whatever we can do yeah support one another is the key message so thank you very very much you're welcome thank you too thank you for listening pleasure and if anyone else wants to speak before we wrap up are we quiet now Yes, no, I'd love to say thank you both again to Philippa and Alice. I know um, I was lucky enough to um, be on a Zoom with you, gosh, two years ago now, I think it was. Um, and, you know, to reread the book again and to share it with uh, others and to hear your stories yet again is just, um, you know, I feel quite blessed. I certainly feel blessed about my life hearing some of the difficulties that you've lived through, Alice, but I certainly feel... Um, uh, oh, and we all do, just um, uh, our universe is expanded by hearing about, you know, just what you've been through, but also your resilience and the exceptional hope. And I wanted to congratulate you both on the book because that is the resounding thing that I got from it, not only about the difficulties, but there is just this fundamental positivity and solution-oriented and hope-oriented, and it's just... Um, so heartening, I think, in this day and age, particularly um, through the last challenging few years for us all. Thank so you. thank you both. Can I just ask a favour then? If anyone wants to just go on and write a little review anywhere, it'll help with sales keep to keep going and and mm -hmm. um, and have more readers because the stories kind of doesn't have a an end date because it's you know it's a, sort of one of those universal mm -hmm. stories as well as. Alice's life. There's a lot of messages that are universal. So yeah. thank you. And I'll share this recording with everyone. So if I can ask the ladies sitting around the table to simply email the link, send it to all of your networks, both men and women, and just encourage them. So it's coming on to nearly two hours. So you know, I'll even break it up into two parts. And then while they're going for their runs or listening or wherever the young people nowadays, because we're all young and beautiful, um, that they listen to their podcasts, that they can then listen to Alice speak and just continue to get the word out there and then to be able to purchase the sales because all the profits from the sales go back to Pader. Thank you. <laughs> much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Alice and Pip. It was wonderful. Oh, it's been lovely. It's been very, very good to join you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alison. Yeah. And we'll speak soon. And thank you, ladies, for joining us this evening. Your books. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.